You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Inside Healthcare. I'm your host, Dave Smolar, Senior Multimedia Specialist here at NCQA. NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance, exists to improve healthcare in America. We want to make care better for everyone. We set expectations of healthcare organizations, measure their performance, and highlight those that do well. And we use science to help us build better health and better choices for all Americans. Now, if you're a fan of this podcast or you have feedback for us, write to us anytime at communications at ncqa.org. We look forward to hearing from you. On this episode of Inside Healthcare, we welcome back an advocate of the hospital at home care model. Later on, we observe Stroke Awareness Month with helpful information from the CDC on changing your lifestyle for the better. But first, our next guest is a former guest. We first interviewed Dr. Pippa Schulman way back in episode 76, which dropped in April 2022. Listeners back then had a chance to learn about the hospital-at-home model of care, but also get an entree to one of last year's amazing Quality Talks speakers. And Dr. Shulman returned for Quality Talks 2023 and kindly returned to Inside Healthcare as well. You get a chance to watch her presentation at qualitytalks.org. And if you registered for the event, you get immediate access to all the presentations. If you didn't, it'll be a couple more months, but all of the past presentations are up there right now as well. Each speaker had 15 minutes to speak. Concise, provocative, insightful. You're bound to find new ideas that could change your perspective on healthcare. And for now, please, you can enjoy this in-depth conversation. But first, here's a bit about our guest. Dr. Pippa Schulman is Chief Medical Officer of Medically Home, the world's first virtual hospital. Medically Home is a tech-enabled services company providing all the necessary capabilities to safely shift medical care from hospitals to patients' homes. Dr. Schulman is board-certified in family medicine, preventive medicine, and hospice and palliative medicine. Dr. Schulman and her company were described in a January 2023 New York Times article titled, Your Next Hospital Bed Might Be at Home. We'll hear more about the article in our conversation, and I'll put a link for the article in this episode's description. As with all healthcare models, there are hybrid models of hospital at home, aspects of home care that could be incorporated into just about any medical service or facility. It's not an all or nothing job, but you don't have to take my word for it. Here's my talk, my 2023 talk, with Dr. Pippa Schulman. Medically Home, the original vision is the world's first virtual hospital. We started with the idea that uh, you could take this sort of nascent movement of home hospital that has been researched in this country for more than 20 years and worldwide for a lot longer and add the best in logistics and technology to really enable home hospital at scale for the highest acuity patients possible. The advantage of the virtual care model is that it allows us to actually create a hybrid model um, so that there's physicians and nurses practicing virtually, but also bedside care delivered right where the patient is when they need it. And that allows uh, support to patient access um, as well as scale for health systems. And once we learned how to do it for hospitalized patients, we realized we could really enable the entire continuum of care and so now we're really thinking about 
okay, are there patients who would go to the ED um, that need emergency department care that could be treated at home? How could you deliver care to patients at home who are still connected to their primary care physicians, um, but allow them to safely stay at home and allow the primary care physician to work up acute and urgent needs? So we've grown, we've grown a, a, quite a bit in the last year. It's been, it's been exciting. Give us an update on the growth of the company of Medically Home uh, over the past year between 2022 and, and now, which is early 2023. Uh, and who have you added? You had Kaiser Permanente uh, to a great extent uh, last year. So what have you changed? Who have you added since last year? In addition to growing and expanding that acute inpatient hospital model and really seeing adoption of that you know, across the country, not just with our customers, but across the country, you know, now the, the Medicare waiver that allowed payment for Medicare service patients is active in 37 states. Um, we've really seen uh, adoption increase. In addition, last year, we brought online a pilot that we'd been doing, we really scaled it up and that was for emergency department care in the home. So these are patients with undifferentiated complaints, um, everything really other than acute, uh, you know, like a, a signs of a heart attack or stroke, but you know, shortness of breath, um, fall, uh, fever in uh, a person with chronic illness. You know, they call their primary care team, and in the past, they would have been directed straight to the emergency department. We can actually bring the emergency department to them now using a specially trained community paramedic uh, linked or tethered back to an emergency physician. Uh, in the command center who can do assessment, treatment, diagnostics all in place. And what's incredible is that for many of these patients um, who if they'd gone to the ED have somewhere around a 40 to 65% chance of admission to the hospital, we've been able to keep 80% or more out of the hospital. And we've, we've compared that across severity levels you know, there is an element, if you are frail, older, if you have multiple medical conditions and you go into an emergency department, you know, there's a lot of worry and often people are getting admitted when they could be safely treated at home. And so we're really just continuing to expand uh, the care model. When I think of hospital at home, the first thing I think of is somebody coming to the home, uh, you know, as a, a, a PA or, or somebody coming to assist. <clears throat> then there's another level where it's not a medical professional, but it might be a family member, somebody there as a caregiver, and you're able to advise them. But are you also saying that you now are incorporated or you've incorporated in the past uh, remote care monitoring software and, and hardware like CGMs and, and uh, those kinds of devices so that the hospital or the PCP then contacts uh, con ends up contacting uh, you or somebody working for you? who is then able to advise somebody and monitor them to a certain extent, uh, monitor a patient at home. People are like, oh, you're doing telemetry in the home. You know, telemetry is a, a, a service that, you know, we often, we employ a lot, but for the most part should be reserved for patients for whom you're worried about a high-risk cardiac event. And so I want to be clear, we're not doing true telemetry in the home because those patients probably need to be in a hospital, but we are able to monitor you know, heart rate and oxygen saturation in relation to their treatment or their disease condition. The, the really important part though, is that connection or that linkage between the, the patient in their home, the care team members who are coming to the home and their, their command center nurse and command center physician. 
you know, medicine is a team sport. And in order to address, you know, staffing shortages and job satisfaction, we really need to expand that team and use everyone we can to make sure that we're not asking our nurses to do, you know, the hunting and gathering of supplies that they do in the bricks and mortar hospital. We want them to focus on patient care, you know, teaching patients, understanding their disease status. We want the bedside team to be able to focus on the skills that are required for what's needed. So, you know, again, um, we often use paramedics uh, or ACLS trained RNs in our primary in-home clinician model, and they can bring to the bedside, you know, bedside um, ISTAT, uh, excuse me, bedside blood diagnostics, uh, EKG, ultrasound. We can bring x-ray into the home. Um, they can deliver medications. And working together, we're really able to create this care ecosystem around a patient. The other thing I'll add, a lot of people ask about caregivers and caregiver support. Many of our patients actually live alone. So that's that's the first thing is there's a misconception that you need to have someone at home. If you are functionally independent prior to your need for the home hospital, you can stay at home. We may bring in a home health aide or someone to be with you, but you don't have to have family come to stay with you. The other thing is that you, if you live with family um, or other caregivers, we do not rely on them to provide your medical care we rely on them to be your family. And so again, if you needed uh, support with ADLs such as washing or bathing, we will offer to bring in an aide to do that. We won't ask your family member to do that unless that's something that they want to do or set up for success. We don't want this to be a burden on caregivers. That's really important. And this coming year, we're really thinking about ways to measure that um, and show that home hospital can actually help caregivers as well as patients. That's a good point. As far as measurement goes, that gives us something else to talk about in a couple of months <laughs> or somewhere down, yes. down the line to find out um, what it, because NCQA is all about measurement. So that's, that's a great well, point. You know, this is a new field where, where we need to set forward a measurement framework for patient satisfaction and caregiver stress and satisfaction, and also, you know, quality, safety, access, equity, cost. We need to make sure that home hospital programs all around the country, not just my own, um, or the partners we work with are held to a, a very high standard because we don't want bad actors in this space that's growing so quickly. And so I think we welcome that the partnership on, on quality and safety um, and are really looking forward to some of the new um, metrics that are coming forth as part of the CMS extension are really looking at some of these additional uh, quality avenues. And, I, and I'm, I'm excited about what we're gonna see in the coming years from these programs. So I want to ask you about the New York Times article, <laughs> which is, uh, I mean, it's it. they interview a number of different places that all talk about hospital at home. You're you're there and, and medically home is included as well. Um, <clears throat> and it's, it's a beautiful article to read, given that it focuses a lot of the perspective, the point of view uh, from a patient and a patient's family. So it's, it's really giving these these. Um, cases so that you understand from the inside out what the experience is like for a patient at home. So tell me some of your some of your thoughts, some of your key takeaways from the article. It's hard to capture in how many ways our programs are really similar. I think one of the impressions that came across, particularly for our programs, is that it's there's a there's mostly virtual care happening. And you know, just like in some of the Presbyterian models, we do have clinicians at the bedside. We are making sure that that patients are are really well cared for. 
Um, and so it is that, that hybrid virtual approach. And again, it's hard to, to capture that. I think there were um, questions around, uh, you know, rightly so brought up by, you know, nursing. How, how does nursing fit into this? And, and what I think I would love to have seen more of is, you know, in, in the medically home model, but really across the country, nursing is the engine of home hospital. Um, these programs are nurse powered in many, many ways. And we see very high job satisfaction from the nurses who practice in the model. Um, and they really feel like they're connecting with their patients in a great way. Um, look, I do think she captured very well how the pandemic propelled this movement um, and, uh, and showed that although it's, it seems like it's slow adoption, you know, the fact that it's, it's gone as quickly as it has is, is really um, uh, quite exciting. And that, you know, 40% of health executives surveyed, and, and you know, they, they quote this in the article, um, intend to implement a program in the next five years. So the future is very bright for, for home-based acute medical care in this country. Now that you are able to expand, now that you have this, you've had this relationship with, um, with Kaiser, with KP, uh, and it's not in one place and not only on the East Coast or in Boston, but in various places around the country. So what have you learned now in the past year that maybe you hadn't considered before in terms of being able to expand out or trying to convince the larger and larger companies to be able to utilize um, your services or uh, um, how to replicate these services around the country? We really have to think about the care ecosystem and and how we're gonna provide services in rural and in rural communities. It's not that we can't, we absolutely can, but we may, um, we really are thinking about how we can collapse services into a fewer number of providers going into the home rather than you know, an, a, a very large and diffuse uh, service provider network. I, you know, and then there's the issues of, of connectivity, uh, which is happens in rural and urban communities, but needing to make sure that, you know, everyone has access in those spaces. We've also really taken pains to think about how we ensure access to the program for as wide a group of patients as possible. And one of the challenges of home hospital has traditionally been reimbursement. And the CMS waiver helped with that, but state Medicaid agencies still had to approve payment for the model. And not all of them did in states where there are active programs. And so we've worked with colleagues you know, at, at other programs to really lobby and try to get either, sometimes it had to be changes to, to um, uh, legislation. Sometimes it had to just be working with the governor's office in those states to make sure that um, services were covered for, um, for really all patients. And then how do we measure that the patients who are being cared for in home hospital programs look like the patients being cared for in the bricks and mortar hospital? You don't wanna see those populations look very different um, if you're really providing this um, in an equitable way. And so really pushing that again for our systems, but, but beyond that. The final lesson that I think we've been learning since we opened, and that I, I think a lot of uh, sort of DIY programs learn very quickly is you know, the logistics of getting people good services to the home in a timeframe that is equivalent to the hospital is complicated. And it requires a certain amount of volume running through that network to be really efficient and effective. 
And if we don't have that, we have unused capacity, you know, skills may wane, uh, it becomes very expensive. Um, and you don't, you can't kind of keep it firing as uh, in a highly um, efficient way as you'd like to. And so what we've really focused on is how can we make sure that we are efficiently using all those resources, but that we're keeping them busy so that they are um, you know, providing really high quality, excellent care uh, to patients all, all over the country. And it's important to be sensitive to that. I'm sure it was in the article, in the New York Times article, saying that, you know, for a hospital at home, for this model of care to work, the large providers, everybody's in favor of everything. They're more than happy to do, to incorporate something like this and, and to have partners, you know, like medically home. But eventually it gets down to a number and they're able to put a number down and say, this is the number of patients that need to be served. Like this is the minimum number of patients that we would need to have provided this service. And if we don't have this many patients who could use the service, it's not feasible for, it's not economically feasible for us to do it. So what do you tell them? What advice do you have for them? I think there's a few answers and it depends on who you're talking to, right? For a health system, we can work with them and, and really show them the point at which their program breaks even. And then that number, you know, is somewhere between 12 and 25, depending on the health system. Um, and, you know, might be a little higher, uh, might be a little lower, depending on, on how you're allocating your hospital overhead. Um, but when you look at many programs in the country struggle to get above five, you can see why there's challenges, right? So we can get you to that number in a you know, relatively short time frame, And we wanna work with our partners and customers to show them the levers um, and, and really understand the economics of our programs. So I think that's important. It is also understanding for a lot of our health system partners that the ability to create this kind of access allows them to backfill beds with other services in their hospitals. Is that part of their economics? Are they more of a value-based provider who is really counting on readmission savings and uh, decreased downstream utilization of things like skilled nursing facilities and home health care? You know, that's we can model those out uh, so that systems can understand that. You know, most of our programs and, and most hospital home programs show large reductions in readmissions. Um, you know, there's there's something about being in the home. We can talk about what that is that that leads to that. And so, you know, can you do savings on the other side? You know, that conversation starts to change as you begin to talk to the you know, payer providers or even the payers, you know, again, it's more around that, that creating value for the whole system um, by providing the right care at the right time for the right person in the right place, which is their home. So I want to, I want to roll back to uh, the mention of health equity. Uh, you were talking about rural communities as well. Everybody deserves you know, to have health, uh, healthcare available to them, to have it close by, to have it provided properly. Everybody deserves it and everybody needs it. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times when we're talking about health equity, especially on the show, we're thinking about urban communities, rural communities, it's the same thing. If somebody has to travel two hours to go and just to see the PCP or to get to a clinic, you know, if they could do something at home, they could do something. So if there's a way of reducing the, the extent to which they even need to leave the house to be able to get real, proper care, proper follow-ups to know that they have somebody that they can turn to um, and to, to get the right kind of instruction once they get off the phone or once they get offline with them. 
instruction on how to monitor themselves or self-care or admit itself and whatever it happens to be, then that's a big help having hosp- that aspect of hospital at home. Um, so tell me you know, about using the hospital at home care model to whatever extent for helping to fill up those uh, gaps in, in equity care. You know, in many towns, it's really hard to maintain, you know, hospital-based physicians, primary care physicians, and particularly specialists. Um, and so the, being able to centralize the, the, the command center physician services um, allows you to really be able to drop highly effective specialty care into communities that might not have that, whether rural or urban. I mean, this is a problem in both areas. That's one area that I think about it. We've really looked at, you know, I think that the understanding what, what is available and who these communities are is really, really important. It is hard to measure. And so, you know, one of the indexes that we've been looking at is the area deprivation index or neighborhood deprivation index, which looks across a number of factors um, both around access to, to health services, but also more social determinants of health um, and creates an index score. And so again, sort of, are we, are we able to provide access across that index score? And then what do we need to make sure we're incorporating into the program other than, you know, especially here's one example, but what about access to meals? What about um, support for, um, you know, other services that are gonna go into the home? And so working with systems to make sure that's really integrated is, is tremendously important. We also need to make sure that we are training our care teams, both the virtual care teams and the care teams that are going in the home to be culturally competent clinicians, to be able to diffuse tense situations, to be able to create connection um, across many boundaries, um, to be able to bring in medical translation services to every patient, right? So really thinking about all of these areas that we can open up um, and make sure uh, the program programs are available to all patients. And I'm really proud of the work we've done. I think there's a lot more work to do. The entire home-based medical field is a really interesting one with regards to some of these equity questions because, you know, the lar- large numbers of patients on government programs such as Medicaid or the duly eligible are already getting home-based medical care, often home-based primary care. And how can we open up the whole spectrum and continuum for them, just like we would for folks who might have commercial insurance um, or who are, are have payers in other areas. It's, a, it's an exciting time. And I'm, I'm again, this is where I think collaboration across the wider hospital home community has been so fun um, and where there's been a lot of conversation uh, in these areas. Episode 99 of this show, we had a, a good interview that was recorded uh, from our first uh, uh, NCQA Health Innovation Summit back in uh, November of 2022. And we talked in that interview about burnout of clinical health workers. So let's talk about burnout. Let's talk about how it relates to hospital at home and how hospital at home can help uh, one way or another to either resolve some of these issues, to alleviate these kinds of issues or pressures for clinicians. When we offer people flexibility in their work, when they're able to, for instance, have a job where some of the days they're in a bricks and mortar hospital and some of the days they might be a remote nurse, a virtual nurse or a remote uh, virtual physician. That offers a different kind of balance for folks that can help 
decrease some of the stress you might feel in the bricks and mortar hospital. I'd also say that for our home hospital programs, the, the fact that we are really incorporating a team of people, it's allowing, you know, and I think about this, especially for that command center nurse, for that person to really be focused on um, kind of the true bedside nursing, the, 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 the teaching, the education on disease status, uh, the interaction with patient and family, the reassurance um, and comfort, and that someone else might be their, their hands in the home, but that they're really still providing that heart of caring. Um, likewise, for people going into um, the home-based uh, side, what's interesting is to think about our paramedic partners, you know, Traditionally, the paramedic role has been very high intensity, scoop and run, you know, highly emergent situations. That is a career field that many burn out on very, very quickly. By changing the career trajectory, by adding in this whole new skill set of acute bedside care, of community paramedicine, sometimes called mobile integrated healthcare, um, we're really able to expand career options for folks like paramedics or um, ACLS trained nurses, things like that um, in a really different way. And again, incorporate them into the care team. And there's, when you're with hospital at home, you're absolutely face-to-face -face with somebody. So, you know, one of the things that's happened in burnout is, uh, um, is people having to do so much number crunching and paperwork and getting mired in that and having so many patients they need to attend to simultaneously, they're doing rounds just like a, in a, you know, a pinball machine, just bang, 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 back and forth, and not having the opportunity that they might in normal times of being able to focus and spend more time uh, with face-to-face -face with patients. And so it seems like with hospital home and being able to do more care in uh, maybe more focused on fewer patients, and more face FaceTime with them, um, even if it's remote, even if it's uh, telehealth, at least it's an aspect of humanity that people in the medical profession long for and has been missing to a certain extent the last couple of years. I wanna, I wanna comment on that human connection piece because I think so many of us went into medicine or into healthcare because of our desire to help other human beings. And when, if I'm working remotely, when the, and I don't have said this before, when the camera goes on and I can see, you know, things on the wall, I can see a, a cat or a dog, I can see a patient has somebody there with them or doesn't, um, that I can, I can very rapidly make that connection in a way that's very different than when I walk into a hospital room and there's a person in a bed wearing the same gown that everyone else in the hospital is wearing. And it is those kinds of connections that open up that opportunity for the healing and therapeutic relationship to happen. People want to be seen as human beings and people want to be seen as complete human beings. And, and, and I know that sounds grandiose, but that's part of what being in the home allows. We have shifted that dynamic. We have put the patient literally in the center and we're able to learn so much about them and create that healing uh, connection and environment for them, and then create a care plan down the road that actually fits with where they really live because we've been there and we've seen it, whether it's chaotic or calm or, or neat or, or untidy. Um, and that's really the 
fun and the magic and what people talk about loving so much is getting to see their patients as, as full, complete people. My recent talk with 2023 Quality Talks speaker, Dr. Pippa Shulman, Chief Medical Officer of Medically Home. Again, Dr. Shulman's presentation will soon be available to qualitytalks.org. And if you registered for the event, you're about to get access to all of this year's presentations. In fact, the live stream recording that has all of the interviews as well in between the presentations is available right now. The rest of our listeners will get access for free in about three months. But never fear, many presentations from past year's Quality Talks events are up on the site right now. So everybody go and dive deep. There's always something to find, an inspirational or unconventional take on healthcare that maybe you've never even considered and you want to share. Check it out. Well, folks, time now for some fast facts. This is the part of the show that throws you some knowledge to contemplate and spread around to family, friends, and colleagues. This month, the month of May, is Stroke Awareness Month. So here are some fast facts from the CDC on possible risks for strokes. I'll have a link to this information in this episode's description. Now, if you have any of the following conditions in your health history, you are considered at increased risk for a stroke. These include high blood pressure, high cholesterol, heart disease, obesity, and of course, if you've already had a stroke in the past, well, you're at risk for another. Of course, a healthier lifestyle helps lower your risk of having a stroke. Keeping a healthy weight, getting regular physical activity, avoiding fatty foods, smoking, drinking, all of these, as you can imagine, would set you on the right path towards a healthier life. But it's also important not to overwhelm yourself with changes. It's not realistic to try to do everything at once. There's nothing wrong with starting small, changing a little at a time, cutting back on a few things, and working your way to a healthier lifestyle and a healthier life. Well, continuing this talk on stroke awareness, I don't want to get away without mentioning NCQA's Heart Stroke Recognition Program, or HSRP. The Heart Stroke Recognition Program provides clinicians with tools that support delivery of high-quality care to patients with cardiovascular disease, CVD, or patients who've previously had a stroke. Measures for this one include blood pressure control, use of aspirin or another antiplatelet, and smoking and tobacco use cessation assistance. So in order to track all of these, in order to get involved with the recognition program, for more information on updates and pricing, oh, and to download the intro packet on HSRP, click on the link that I'll provide in this episode's description. Everyone, it's time again to focus on the place, the place that inspires and accelerates healthcare quality in America. And that place for quality is NCQA's Health Innovation Summit. For three amazing days in October 2023, the Gaylord Palms Resort and Convention Center in Orlando, Florida will host our annual convention. Bringing together leaders from across the healthcare ecosystem, the Health Innovation Summit from NCQA will focus on all aspects of quality, including digital solutions, health equity, value-based care, and more. It will feature thought-provoking speakers, one-of-a-kind education opportunities, 
all kinds of training, and an exhibit floor showcasing the latest in innovation. Register now. Go to ncqasummit.com for more. Well, as we do on each episode of Inside Healthcare, we now ask for your thoughts on today's show. Email us again at communications at ncqa.org anytime, and be sure to include Inside Healthcare, those three words, in the subject line. Makes it easier to, to find you. And if you're coming up empty for something to say, here's our question for this episode. Why do you think, why are so many healthcare workers leaving hospital life to take up home care positions? Well, think about it. I've been thinking about it. And then tell us about it. And if you have a comment, a suggestion, an idea for a guest on our show, maybe you want to be that guest. Maybe you know who our next guest should be. Just email us and let us know. Communications at ncqa.org. And again, be sure to write Inside Healthcare in the subject line. That's the name of the show. Hope to hear from you soon. That's it for episode 105 of NCQA's Inside Healthcare podcast. Thanks again for joining us. This episode's done, but there are plenty more that came before it for you to explore and investigate. You can find us at blog.ncqa.org or find us on any Apple or Google streaming app. Whether you download the show, whether you stream it, if you find us, then follow us, favorite us, click the little heart thing on the screen, and Please spread the word about the show. Help us continue to build our audience by letting others know about NCQA's work. If you haven't done so already, connect with NCQA on LinkedIn and Twitter. You get video promos for this very show that you can share with your friends and colleagues. And as always, we thank you, our loyal listener, for helping our audience continue to grow. On behalf of our continued award-winning NCQA communications team, I'm Dave Smolar. We'll see you again, no doubt. You've been listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast brought to you by NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance. Inside Healthcare is available on your computer or mobile device through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on our blog at blog.ncqa.org forward slash podcast.